You're listening to One Good Take, the podcast that delves into the nitty-gritty of film development and distribution and explores the often elusive chemistry that brings the film to life. My next guest is a man who at one time in his life was regularly busting down doors and booking crack dealers in New Orleans. Today, Chuck Hussmeyer spends the best part of his time at home writing and pitching action scripts that draw heavily on his years of being a cop and a federal agent. Here's that take. Hey, Chuck, how's it going? Going pretty good. How about you, Nick? Yeah, I'm okay. And how is uh, the weather out in Louisiana? I believe you are in Louisiana. Yeah, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Right now, looking out the window, it's uh, it's very clear, and it's going to get up to about 80 degrees today, so kind of warm. Yeah, that's Fahrenheit, isn't it, for anyone listening? <laughs> not not <laughs> <Yeah>. Celsius. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, uh, I have no idea what that would be in Celsius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but fairly warm, I would say. Yeah, but that's, yeah. that's yeah. the South Pole, get up to it? Yeah, it'll get up to 100 this summer. Yeah. Is that where you're from originally? Uh, yeah, I think Baton Rouge, isn't it, your, ta- your hometown? Yeah, Baton Rouge is uh, where I was born and raised, and I lived for many years at, just outside of New Orleans, but um, then when I got out of law enforcement, I came back to Baton Rouge. Yeah. Well, we'll get to script writing and the film business in just a moment, but it'd be great to hear a little bit about your background, because that so informs the kind of writing you do. Uh, so you, you said you were in law enforcement. Uh, that was... Um, First of all, as a cop, right? And uh, then with the DA's office and later ATF. Correct. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I started out my career in local law enforcement in Baton Rouge. And then uh, I I was a sheriff's deputy. I was a military policeman in the Army. Uh, I was a district attorney's investigator. And then I was hired by the federal government and worked for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms. How long were you with ATF? Uh, 13 years with ATF. All oh, right, 13. What made you go for the switch from, you know, regular police guy to the Bureau? Uh, well, it's just a lot more exciting uh, in the federal <laughs> government. And yeah, the pay, okay. The pay is much better in the federal government than uh, with local law enforcement. So, uh, you know, just, just more stuff to do, more opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And I believe you were a sniper as well. I mean, quite a lot of armed... Uh, violent sort of crimes that you had to deal with, yeah? Yeah. Um, I specialized pretty much in fugitive investigations and drug and gun investigations. Uh, so we, back in the 90s, we did a lot of work um, in, in housing projects uh, in New Orleans. Uh, there was a lot of crack dealing going on, a lot of shootings. Uh, New Orleans, for several years, was the murder capital of the United States. So uh, we never lacked for, uh, for criminals to chase after. I was on the uh, SWAT team, and uh, my position was a uh, sniper. There was two of us, uh, on, and the rest of the guys were the entry team, and, and me and my partner were um, the sniper element. What made you go for the role of sniper? Was it you were just a really good shot, and you were known as a good shot? <laughs> well, um, I did a lot of entry stuff also. I mean, we did a lot of warrants, so sometimes it, it, you didn't use a sniper every time. Um, no, sure. It, that's sort of an overwatch position, and sometimes it wasn't practical, so we would just go ahead and go through the door ourselves. But um, ATF was um, forming a, uh, a, a sniper position within each special response team, and uh, you know, a buddy of mine talked me into going to the school. It was it was kind of a rough school. It was extremely hot, crawling around in the woods all the time, but uh, I enjoyed it, and um, I liked the precision of uh, long range shooting. 
there's a lot of math involved, believe it or not. And, um, you know, you got to know something about the weather. It's, it's just a lot of crazy elements that you wouldn't think of that have to go into a sniper. Yeah, I mean, from what I know from movies, it's, it's very much uh, the direction of the wind and the force of the wind is really important, right? Yeah, there's that, shot. and obviously the, the distance of the shot, um, and yeah. you know the, the getting to the right position, and whether it's a cold bore shot or you've fired several rounds already, that affects it. I mean, it's it's just a very precise thing, and um, you know they have a lot better shots than me, but on average, I, I was a pretty good shot. So I mean, you, you have to pass certain tests to go through sniper school. Probably the hardest one is after two grueling weeks of. Uh, of, you know, crawling around the woods, getting poison ivy, repelling off of helicopter skids. It all came down, the school I went to, it all came down to uh, five shots. You had to put five shots in a two-inch circle, um, and if you miss one, you're out. You flunked. So all of the, everything that you did before uh, was wasted. So uh, it, it was quite a lot of pressure on those five shots. Oh, wow. So just a two-inch circle, you said? Yeah, two-inch, 100 yards. really I mean, tight. It's not... It's not that hard because, you know, you have a scope, but I mean, the slightest little movement of your hand, uh, you know, will, will move you off. You don't have a lot of room for error, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. You retired from the ATF and tell us a little bit about what happened uh, that forced you out, kind of, you know, <laughs> really, you had not <laughs> much choice unless you wanted a desk job. Right. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I was with ATF for 13 years and uh, during that time, um, I was in a bad accident. And I broke my neck, I broke my back, and so, several other minor bones like my shoulder blade and my ribs. And um, I had a pretty good concussion. Uh, I, I came back from that. I had surgery, a couple surgeries, came back from that, and went back to work. But uh, I developed some pretty painful arthritis in my back and neck. And um, it was just going to get worse. And ATF became aware of it uh, through my doctor the government was paying for and uh, they suggested I uh, spend the, the next several years working as a, a desk jockey and being what's called an operations officer, I believe is what they were going to put me as. So I opted to apply for the um, medical retirement because it was an on-the-job injury, and they granted it to me. They didn't give me any trouble with it. I had, you know, obviously some pretty severe injuries, and um, they were never going to heal completely. So they gave me the retirement, and I uh, decided to pursue, you know, kind of a passion of mine, which had always been writing. Yeah. Had you been writing up to that point or, or during yeah. your time at the ATF? Uh, yeah, sometimes uh, when I when I could, you know, um, I, I started writing, I guess, when I was a junior high or high school. And I tried to write a novel back then, you know, with pen and paper. I, I never finished one. But uh, I did, uh, as I got older, I did enjoy writing. I finished, a, you know, a novel or two in my spare time. It was nothing really great. but. Uh, I did have a passion for it, and I thought, well, you know, maybe I could uh, could could follow this dream, you know, be a writer after my law enforcement career. And you know, so far, knock on wood, it's uh, it's worked out okay. And you were writing nonfiction articles, weren't you, for some time? Yeah, I I, um, I tried fiction first, and uh, couldn't really sell anything with fiction. And uh, I just happened to run into a guy who was a newspaper writer, and he said, "Hey, have you ever tried nonfiction, like newspaper articles?" And I, I'd never thought about it. So I bought a couple of books from Barnes and Noble on how to write newspaper articles and magazine articles and ended up pitching a few ideas and, you know, ended up, uh, I now have over 700 uh, published magazine and newspaper articles. So, you know, and that was fun for several years, but, you know, it gets old writing about, you know, town council meetings or school board meetings or things like that. So, 
I went back into fiction, tried my hand at screenwriting and found out I really kind of have a, a knack for a screenwriting that, you know, short enough. Novels take forever to write, as you know, but, um, you know, screenplays are a couple months, you know, you can knock one out and, and see if it's any good. And your first screenplay, that was based on a novel, right? One, one of your own, that is? Yeah, the, uh, the second novel I wrote, um, the first one didn't get published, but the second novel I wrote got published by a small publisher. It was called House of the Rising Sun. And uh, I did through a, just a odd set of circumstances, um, I guess it would be a series of fortunate events, uh, sold that screenplay to a producer and it did get made into a movie starring Dave Bautista and, you know, um, uh, Danny Trejo was in it, Dominic Purcell. And, you know, pretty decent movie for a low budget action movie. When you say low budget, what kind of budget are we talking? Uh, I think it was about two million. Yeah. Okay. And how many years ago was that? Uh, 11, 11 years ago. Well, t- it, the movie came out in 2011. So the movie came out 10 years ago. We filmed it 11 years ago. And how did you chance on the producer who, I believe you, you had a producer who then passed it on to somebody else. Is that right? And a production yeah. company? Yeah. Yeah. It, it went through a, a lot of, um, uh, permutations there, but it was, um, a producer in Baton Rouge saw an article, somebody had written about my book. And he asked me if he could option it. So he paid me a small fee for an option fee. And he said, well, look, can you write the screenplay? And I had been learning screenwriting. I had practiced it. I had written a couple of bad screenplays. And I told him, yeah, I can do it. And so I wrote the script. Eventually, that movie or his version of it never came out. He was never able to produce it. The rights reverted back to me. And I ended up selling it to another producer who I just met by sending out cold query letters. You know, I. I would just bombard people with these query letters and one of them got back to me and eventually he bought the script and produced it. Yeah. And how would you find these? You said cold call as it were, or just sending, pitching people cold. How did you find these people? Did you go through IMDB pro and that kind of thing? Or was there a a closer network that you were able to, you know, second or third degree separation? No, it was cold. It was uh, IMDb Pro, basically. I subscribed to it. I still subscribe to it, you know, 12 years later. And I use that to figure out email addresses and contact people who do. I've kind of worked out this system. You know, I've been interviewed about it before. It's just, you know, how to do a query letter. I have a little formula that I use for a query letter because, you know, producers don't like to read. So, um, I give them as little to read as possible. You know, I hit them with the log line right up front, hit them with the, the title and basically tell them a tiny little bit about myself. And then I ask them, you know, point blank, can I send you a copy of whatever the title is? And, I, you know, I think that sort of uh, begs the question in their mind of yes or no. And I, that, I, that's what I want. I want them to decide yes or no. And hopefully it's yes. But nine, nine times out of 10 or actually 99 times out of 100, it's no. It's a numbers game. You just have to really keep sending out those query letters and eventually you'll you'll start building your own network. And that's the key to sending out these cold queries is you're trying to build your own network of contacts who read your stuff. That's the key. Now that you've got a bit of a network, do you still do any kind of cold pitches or, or are you relying on reaching out to people within your network and then saying, Well, look, here's the script, but if you if it's not for you, could you recommend one of your associates or somebody you know? 
Well, really, I do both. I, I still send out cold queries. If I see a movie and I, I like it and I say, hey, that's an action movie. That's sort of like what I write. I'll find the producer's uh, contact information and I'll, I'll send them a query letter if I don't know them. Then I take my existing network. You know, I have a list on Excel of, you know, my movie contacts. <laughs> that's my original title for it. Movie contacts is the name of the file. So I'll take that and, um, you know, I'll send them whenever I, I write a new script, uh, I get a new idea, uh, re- rights revert back to me from a previous option. I'll send out queries to uh, those people who I know or who have responded to me in the past. I mean, I did that just last night. You know, I sent uh, a production company. Actually, it's a, um, a distributor, um, the president of this company. I sent um, her an email and I said, hey, uh, I've got four action scripts. You know, I've written this, this and this. Uh, some of your employees have read my scripts before. Can I send you these log lines? And she put me right in touch with her director of development. And, you know, I'm waiting to see if they ask for any uh, of the scripts. You know, I sent them four log lines. Hopefully they'll last for all four, but at least hopefully they'll last for one. With your scripts, do you draw heavily on your own personal experience in law enforcement? Well, the or, stories or do you kind of not, mix it up? Yeah. Um, the, st- the stories are, are original. I mean, but yeah. when I'm writing the action scenes, um, yeah, I use, you know, my knowledge of, you know, 22 years total in law enforcement. Um, so I use my knowledge to write what I call realistic action. You know, it's not John Wick type action, which sells a lot better than my action. But I write, you know, I'm I'm limited on uh, you know my creativity, I guess. So I write what I consider a regular person could do under the right circumstances. So my action is is pretty much grounded in, in real life. And I definitely use because I've done a lot. I mean, I've been on hundreds of. Uh, raids and search warrants. I've been in a you know big gunfight, um, you know. So I know I have a good idea of what uh, what it you know this action involves and and who could do what and what's totally impossible. You know, one person beating up five or six people is completely impossible. That never happens in real life. So I don't have the heroes of my stories doing that. Yeah, that's something that I find so ridiculous. You know that people get into a fight with five or six other people and there's just a little bit of blood on their lip. And, you know, I mean, five good punches to the face and you're, you're looking pretty bruised and like a, <laughs> a really overripe squash fruit. Um, yeah. You yeah, know, exactly. it's like, it's just crazy. Um, I guess it's a makeup issue, you know, <laughs> they haven't got the time to give you that look throughout the whole film. Yeah, and I, I don't think movie stars want to walk around with a fat lip for two weeks, which is yeah. what really happens if you get punched in the face. Exactly. Um, or you'll have yeah. a bruise for, you know, 10 days or something, black eye. Yeah, they, they remarkably, they have a little trickle of blood and then everything's good. But it's always been like that. You know, all the way back yeah. to John, John Wayne. John Wayne movies, they made bar fights look like a lot of fun. You yeah. Know? <laughs> People breaking glass bottles over your head would really give you a concussion and you would be, you know, seeing a doctor. but in, in they just laugh it off. Yeah, no, exactly. With the film that you did with Chuck Pierce, sorry, Guy Pierce, what am I saying? You're Chuck. <laughs> with the film you did with Guy, uh, Disturbing the Peace, that's pretty crazy. I mean, <laughs> one sheriff dealing with a whole gang of uh, motorcycle crazy people. Um, <laughs> did you ever encounter that sort of situation where you were, maybe you and a couple of other cops up against a really big gang and you kind of had to 
pretty much hold the fort. <laughs> no, as it uh, were. That, that doesn't, <laughs> this it doesn't is fiction, really, right? <laughs> that doesn't happen a lot in real life. Yeah. Um, the specific action that I used in that script, though, um, which didn't get translated to the movie in any way, shape, or form, uh, but the original. Uh, the, the stunt coordinator, interestingly enough, I was on the set and the stunt coordinator came up and uh, complimented me on one specific move I had in there in particular. And you really have to know how pump action shotguns work. But uh, I had the hero wrestling over a shotgun. You know, two two guys had both hands each on the shotgun. And there is a way to unload it. Um, you know, if you can reach into the breech, there's a little lever inside of a pump action shotgun and you can take all of the shells out, even if you're fighting over it. So I had the hero do that. Um, and then the, the, the weapon was useless. But uh, the stunt and the stunt coordinator came up to me. He goes, man, that's a really good scene. He said, unfortunately, we're probably not going to be able to shoot that, you know, because it's just too it's a little bit too complex. You'd have to get too close of an angle on it. But Anyway, uh, at least so, the at least the stunt guy appreciated the effort I, I put yeah. into it. Yeah. So how much did that script change in a way that was really not to your taste and, and was kind of out of your hands on account of producer requirements, et cetera? Uh yeah, one thing I've learned is um the movies uh don't really come out like the scripts. Um, you know, it's <laughs> There is a lot about that movie in particular disturbing the piece, including the title. My title was Gunfighter, and um, I really liked the title Gunfighter because it was sort of a throwback to you know High Noon, uh, it's old West movie, old westerns that I grew yeah, up watching. Much, yeah, yeah. And um, so I wanted it to have that kind of feel, and so I wanted to call it Gunfighter because the hero, um, you know, was an excellent shot, but he didn't carry a gun because of some traumatic thing that happened in his past. Um, most of that just got washed away. Um, disturbing the piece was a, you know, not a very good pick for a title, I don't think, but, uh, yeah, the production, they didn't really follow the script that closely. They didn't pay that careful attention to it. And that's why you end up with, you know, Guy Pierce playing a United States Marshal instead of a lowly town Marshal uh, two completely different things. And no one in the production really understood the difference. Uh, if I'd gotten to the set sooner, um, you know, uh, I just, my wife and I just went and visited. And when I showed up, I noticed they had U.S. Marshal plastered over the car on the wall. And I said, well, that's really not it at all. And, and the funny thing is they left all the dialogue in from, um, my original script that, that sort of made no sense if you had Guy Pierce playing a U.S. Marshal. It made a lot of sense when he was the town marshal, but it made no sense as a U.S. Marshal. But they didn't really understand the subtle differences in various strata of law enforcement. So anyway, it all became kind of a hodgepodge. Yeah. So they didn't even consult you on that issue in spite of your background uh, before they started shooting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, no one of uh, the three movies I've had made, uh, no one ever really consulted me about anything, um, which is kind of odd because I'm kind of like a free technical consultant. You know, they could easily call exactly. me and, and say, hey, you know, Chuck, we want we have to change this for budget reasons. What's this going to affect up or down the script? And I would have easily told them, you know, well, you, if you're going to change that, then we need to change this. But no one asked. You know, I, I really, honestly, I don't think they care. You know, they buy mm -hmm. the script, the low budget action. They buy the script. Uh, they make the best deals they can with foreign sales and distribution. And 
what I've heard, and I can't swear to it, but what I've heard is pretty much everybody involved has already made all the money they're going to make on that movie. And really, they're all thinking about and talking about the next deal. And they're just going through the motions to push this movie together. And, you know, I find that kind of disappointing. I would really, even a low budget movie, I'd really have them take a little bit more time and and make a good movie. You could certainly make a good low budget action movie. It's just, yeah. and, and I'm sure there are, it's just a lot of people don't take the time. So I'm trying to move up the, the ladder a little bit to sort of medium budget, you know, or low medium budget, somewhere around, I'm thinking maybe seven to 10 million uh, budgets. They probably would care enough to get it right, or at least try to. I know you're writing very much in a genre, you know, sort of crime, well, action, action, really more than crime uh, as such. Do you, when you write, want to bring out certain issues that you feel you want to see change in in law enforcement or are you just kind of going for the ride having fun uh yeah you want the detail but is it more of a kind of genre um, no piece? i mean yeah it's 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 genre i mean i'm not really trying to <laughs> i'm not trying to make too much in the way of social commentary on my yeah. low budget action scripts i'm I'm happy just to try to get the action right. That's I, I want to do a fun story, uh, have a usually usually a, a protagonist with some problems. You know, I, I don't want a squeaky clean protagonist because I really don't think there are any, there are any squeaky clean people. I mean, look at all the politicians over here that end up going to jail all the time or having scandal after scandal. So nobody's squeaky clean. So I try to make that realistic, and then that goes over into my action, which I like. I said I try to make that as as realistic as possible. And, you know, that, that's my goal. I want realistic action and realistic stories. But I would like them made for, you know, by people who um, will pay attention to it, you know. And, you know, but that's every writer, every, every screenwriter, probably of any budget level. I know one of, my, um, one of my favorite action movies from years ago, maybe 20 years ago now, was uh, Payback with Mel Gibson. And um, I heard Brian Helgeland, who wrote the script, was so unhappy with the um, uh, final production, the, the released version, that uh, he came out with his own director's cut because he wrote it and direct. He wrote the script and directed it, and he's one of my favorite writers. Um, but I don't know why he didn't like the original one. I, I, you know, probably the same reason I don't like my movies. But he had the stroke to be able to go out and do a uh, another version of it, and I, I own both of them on DVD, and I like them both. You know, I can think of what's wrong with it, but it's just. You know, I think every writer is unhappy with the movie that comes out of the other end of the camera. Yeah, nearly every time, yeah. So the last one that you did with Guy Pierce was a lot changed in it, or was it like chunks here and there that kind of made you feel, oh, they're not looking at the detail, they're, they're not respecting the original experience that you understand because of your experience? Um, well, in my experience, <laughs> I, don't, I really don't think they respect the the original vision of it in any situation uh it's you know it's like you when you sell a script it's uh you know it's like you sold your car or your house or something i mean they get to do whatever they want with it you know there's no um you know there's no clause in the contract that gives the screenwriter uh editorial uh you know discretion over it but um yeah they uh they did change a lot and, and i understand it. a lot of it was for budgetary reasons but, you know, I, we had a, a really good actor in Guy Pierce, and, uh, you know, the script was, was pretty good. I mean, it's not a great script, but it's a pretty good script, you know. And um, uh, Guy Pierce is a really good actor. 
So I thought, man, he's just going to nail it. And and he was, I mean, I met him on set. My wife and I talked to him uh, several times. I mean, he is just a super nice person to work with and talk to. And he's very serious about his craft. I mean, I saw him with the director all the time, you know, asking the director questions like, okay, well, why would the guy be doing this? You know, why would the guy be doing that? Now, in retrospect, since I've seen the movie, probably should have asked me, but, you know, I'm on set as a, a guest. I, I'm a I'm a tol- tolerated inconvenience uh, yeah. on set. You know, nobody nobody asked me to go to the set. You know, me and my wife just show up and, uh, you know, hang out with the producer or the director or whatever. Um, yeah. We were actually in that movie. We had a little tiny speaking role that I wrote us in just for fun. And uh, okay. that took like, we're the couple in the, in the cafe and we're, we're on screen for like 10 seconds. That took like four hours to shoot. So, um, but it, <laughs> yeah. it was kind of fun. I, now I've started writing us into little cameos in uh, each of my movies. I'm hoping we'll, we'll get in the next one too. It's, it's, uh, cool. it's kind of fun. <laughs> Do you have any ambitions to direct? Oh no. Um, no, no, I'm, I'm 57 and technologically challenged. I mean, just this uh, conversation took me a little while to figure out the software and, uh, you know, I've been in the little lodge that they put up for the directors. You know, I've sat in the director's chair and seen all the screens they have up. And I haven't the foggiest idea what's going on with that stuff. Um, so I don't want to direct. Uh, you know, I, I feel sometimes like I'm an executive producer because I'm now I'm on the phone all the time. I'm trying to put people with other people to get my movies made um, now that I have a little bit more of a network. So. You know, I could see myself uh, sort of demanding a, an EP credit, but uh, as far as day-to-day stuff, um, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I, I enjoy writing, and uh, I just want to get to a level where I can have a little bit of influence maybe with the director and uh, and get the story told more accurately. Now, accuracy is kind of my thing. Who do you go to for inspiration? Other writers, both writers on screenwriting and writers on fiction, whether it's pulp or genre. Who are your big influences? Well, my uh, my biggest influence for dialogue is uh, Elmore Leonard. I mean, I, I, yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah. Decades, uh, yeah, decades. I've read Elmore Leonard uh, novels, and he's uh, you know an acknowledged master of um, of dialogue. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I find myself, I mean, I read constantly. I'm always, every night I read something. I usually read a thriller or a, a crime or something, a crime book. But, um, you know, I find myself kind of disappointed in the brand new thrillers. They all seem the same. They're all kind of corny. And they, they're written by people who really don't, have never been involved in that kind of work. So uh, I, I tend to read older stuff, like books that are 10, 20 years old. Um you know, Jack Higgins, you know, books from 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, he's um, good, yeah. You know, um, uh, just as a lot of older thriller writers, they're they're much better than the current ones, at least that I've been able to find. Yeah. So, Do you know um, Colin Harrison? He's one of my favorites. Colin Harrison? He, he usually writes a sort of, Colin Harrison, yeah, usually a, a noirish sort of fiction. You should look him up. I will. He's, I just wrote it down. Uh, very good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I just wrote that name very down. Good. Um you know, uh, lately, um, like for a detective or crime shows, my wife and I have been watching a lot of BBC shows because they, uh, we just, we just watched the third season of, um, Unforgotten, which is a pretty popular current BBC crime show. And, um, 
I don't know, they just seem more uh, realistic. Like I can't watch U.S. network TV. Um, you know, the big networks, their crime yeah. shows are just absurd. I mean, <laughs> just there, there's no realism in them whatsoever. So uh, we, what I say we, my wife and I, uh, we watch um, a lot of British uh, crime because it's just better. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. It's just better. Um, I wish they had more actors and actresses because you see the same ones in every show. Like we'll go, oh, there's Ruth <laughs> yeah. from uh, MI5. And um, yeah. you know, now she's the detective, the lead detective in uh, Un- Unforgotten. And I've seen her in two or three other shows. I mean, she's a great actress, but it seems funny. You see the same British actors in all of the shows and you know you see the game of thrones people all the time so um i guess it's a smaller smaller group than in the united states yeah to a degree but i think it's also quite cliquey you know it's like well well we've got these people who are hot right now so let's go and pick him or her from this show or that show that was doing well and and they're already known in the usa now so let's work with them you know i I think one of the problems with a lot of the productions that go on here is we have one eye on the market in the US. And to fulfill that need, I think we think, oh, well, we must have the names they've already seen. I, I, don't, I don't know if that's actually true, but it, it seems to work that way from what I hear and what I see, I suppose, you know, like you're saying, uh, the same yeah. places again and again. I, mean, I know so many really talented actors who uh, just don't get a look in. So it's not yeah. like the, there isn't the talent, there is. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, but well, that's one thing I really uh, admire about uh, actors from the UK is so many of them are classically trained actors. They've been on stage, you know, they went through some kind of acting education. And in the US, uh, I don't know, I, I think it's strictly based on looks. That's it. <laughs> the better looking you are, the, better yeah, look, the, the more movie roles you're going to get. And um, I've noticed, I mean, I know I'm getting older, so I must be getting deafer, but I swear so many American actors mumble their lines. Oh, and yeah, I'm for like, sure. I, yeah, I do, can't hear they? it. You know, um, they don't enunciate, you know, they don't project their voice. And so they mumble like they're talking to their best friend two feet away. But really, it's, you got to get it picked up by the microphones and it has to come out of somebody's TV. Um, you know, there's just too many mumblers now in the U.S. Uh, actors, but and they're all young, too. Uh, they're all millennials and they just mumble. We should get away from mumbling. Just do away with mumbling altogether. Send them to a real acting school. <laughs> yeah, my girlfriend's Italian, but she's fluent in English. But very often with American movies, she'll say, we need the subtitles. And it's like, you don't need subtitles. And then I realized that I almost need subtitles as well. You know, with one or two actors, it's like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. And it's it's yeah. exactly what you're saying. You know, just it's just so poorly enunciated that, you're really, if, if the accent's quite strong as well, you know, it, it's very difficult. It's quiet right. and it's mumble. So, yeah, it's difficult. I, I never, we, we always turn the subtitles on for the British shows just because it's hard to understand you guys because you have the, your own slang system. But um, they, they at least speak clearly. I mean, you can hear what they say. I may not understand exactly what they say. Um, right. I, I still don't know what a DOS is. A guy in the, the TV show the other day said, oh, he's a, a DOS, like D-O-S-S. I still don't know what that is, but they call huh. somebody that. Um, and, you know. Well, the, maybe a dosser. Dosser is yeah, a dosser. Uh, yeah, That's somebody it. just That's doesn't. Right, yeah. Somebody can't be bothered to work. Lazy, basically. Oh, okay. Okay. 
yeah. like a slob, a lazy yeah. slob. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we've, uh, <laughs> well, we do turn the, um, we do turn the subtitles on for sure for British English, but we also have to have it on for American English because of the mumbler. So basically the subtitles <laughs> just stay on. It's really crazy, isn't it? Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. And do you have any ambitions to write for TV? Oh yeah, I mean, who doesn't? Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> everybody, uh, everybody's fleeing to uh, TV, from what I hear. And yeah. um, I've written four pilots, and I, I do have a, a deal with a a, a decent, um, uh, a well-established kind of producer here, and uh, he's trying to get into TV himself. You know, he's a features guy, and um, he's trying to get into TV, and he's used, he's he's got a shopping agreement on one of my uh, pilots. So yeah, I'm trying, but it is. Man, if I thought getting into features was tough, getting into pilots is ten times tougher. You know, really? that's a cliquish uh, organization there, and you have to. Um, I mean, people tell me, you know, well, you can. I'm proof you can live anywhere, like in Baton Rouge, and you can sell features. I don't think you can do TV like that. I mean, the writers' rooms are in LA, and I always tell people, look, I'm not moving to LA. You can buy the pilot. I'll be, and you can fire me the next day. That's all. I just want credit and a check. And I would like to see, you know, some good writers take my idea and, and run with it, you know. But, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get into TV just like everybody else. What are you working on currently, Chuck? Um, well, right now I just uh, finished a script called The Filthy Few, and I'm really spending my time the last several weeks just trying to um, sell my current available four action scripts. Uh, I've got an assignment coming. I believe we're negotiating a deal right now. So I'll be writing a pilot uh, for a mini series, a uh, limited series, they call it now, uh, for somebody. Now, whether that would get picked up, you know, who knows. But, you know, some group is hiring me to write a pilot. Uh, I haven't written a spec in about a year or so. I think I've written 24 or 25 scripts, and I'm kind of losing the motivation to write just purely on spec. So I'm, I'm concentrating trying to get. Um, more assignments, you know, where, you know, at least you're going to get some upfront money, but I do have some spec ideas that have been kicking around in my head and eventually they're going to have to come out. Yeah. And when you say assignments, what, what does that mean? Somebody approaches you, can you write this kind of a story and you, you have a go at it almost like a brief? Yeah. It's, um, you know, someone will hire you to write an idea they had for, a, a, in this particular case, it's a, a, a group of people in LA this something happened that involved the Bosnian war in the nineties. One of them was a participant in something and they want uh, to hire a writer to see if, um, you know, if it's a, a viable idea, put a pilot out and then they're going to shop it around or use their agent or whatever to shop it. But they would hire me. I, I've, I've probably been hired to write four or five uh, feature scripts and um, a TV. This will be my first four hire TV pilot, but uh, the feature scripts, you know, uh, one of them is, is heading toward production. The other, like four, so far, nothing's ever happened with them. But, you know, I think that's common with assignments. You know, you write, you know, you're, you're a writer for hire. You don't own any of the rights to it. And once, you're, once you've written it, I, I get a production bonus if they go into production, but that's it. You know, I don't have any rights to it. So you write the, the full script, not just the, an extended treatment. Uh, correct. I've, I've yeah. not, I'm not at a level. I know top, top or writers above me in the hierarchy of writers, uh, you know, they'll pitch something on a treatment and get a big assignment from a studio and a big payday. Uh, at my level, that's not realistic. You pretty much, 
if you get hired, you're lucky, and it, it, they want you to write the whole script for them. So I would like to be at a position someday where I can just you know write a couple of pages, send it to somebody, and have them say, "Hey, you're hired to write your own idea." But so far, that hasn't happened. Um, I follow, I think it was Joe Esterhaus or somebody, a famous writer from the 80s and 90s. He said, just write the damn script. It's too hard. If it's your idea, write the script. Because if you send an idea to somebody, next thing you know, you know, a year later, you'll see it on screen and you're, you weren't involved. So, you know, I'd rather write the script, copyright it, and then start shopping it around if it's my idea. Yeah. Do you have any plans to adapt any of your other fiction? Uh, well, Disturbing the Peace actually um, was based on a, a book idea I had. I didn't finish it. Um, but my second movie, End of a Gun, which starred, I guess you could say, Steven Seagal, uh, that was actually based on my first novel I ever wrote, which never got published. But ironically, I went back to it and I, as an idea for a screenplay, and I wrote that and sold it. In fact, a producer of the first movie, House of Rising Sun, called me and said, do you have anything similar? You know. We could shoot low-budget action, sort of a single protagonist. And I said, well, I told him about the book idea that I, well, the novel I had written but never published. And um, he said, well, that sounds good. Write that as a screenplay. So I did, and eventually it got made. Now it was with another producer, but eventually it got made. And do you draw on events locally, you know, perhaps a story that pops up in, in a local newspaper? Or that when I say local, I mean within Louisiana or that kind of district is, is there sometimes a, a story that jumps out at you and you think, ah, oh, that could, that could be the germ of an idea for a, one of my screenplays. Um, not really locally much. I mean, I did write a, a, I did write a bestselling nonfiction book about a horrendous murder case that happened in new Orleans. And, uh, I actually, I've written a, a feature and I've written a pilot, but I really can't get any traction on them over the years. But, um, well, for example, um, the, the idea behind Disturbing the Peace was an article I read about a, a wildfire in New Mexico. And I thought, well, what if now they cut the wildfire out of the movie? There's no fire in the movie. But my original script, this uh, gang set a wildfire to force this casino to divert their, their armored truck to another bank in the small town. And so that was the basis of the whole thing. I thought, man, what if a gang robbed a bank? and an armored car during a wildfire when the town was being evacuated. So that was the idea of the script originally. And that was my first draft or well, first 10 drafts. And then of course, producers got hold of it and they said, well, no, you know how much a fire cost? Forget that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, forget this and forget this. And next thing you know, you're boiled down to, you know, a guy driving off on a, what appears to be a mini bike at the end of the movie. Uh, so it's, um, they <laughs> yeah. did keep the, the good thing is they did keep the horse in. I always had a horse in the movie. You know, the hero was going to be on a horse facing down these motorcycle bandits, you know, on their big choppers. And that was totally from True Grit with John Wayne, except, yeah. you know, the bad guys were on horses in True Grit. And um, I just wanted that big showdown, you know. And fortunately, Guy Pierce can ride a horse um, yeah. and can handle a Winchester uh, lever action rifle. So that they did keep that in but not the way I wanted, but it was, <laughs> okay. well, and it, that's a long answer, but yeah, I use, um, articles to, uh, to, to inspire me. I mean, I, my, my latest script, uh, the, the filthy few is almost exactly from 
just a, a brief article I read, you know, some, a bunch of ex special forces guys were going to go down to Venezuela and try to kidnap the old president of Venezuela, uh, Maduro, whatever his name was. And they were going to bring him back to the U S because the U S government has a $5 million ransom on him. So I thought, well, that'd be a great idea for a script. So yeah. know, I wrote the dirty, I mean, uh, the filthy few and, um, you know, inspired by that type of thing. Do you find your writing increasingly has to take into account budget? You know, having had these experiences, do you sort of train your mind to go, right, well, I've got <laughs> maybe two to five million in my next one, optimistically 10, you know, avoid fires, et cetera, et cetera. Do, do you other, you know, you look at your scenes and you go, yeah, well, I know this is all going to be pulled about. I'd rather do it myself than have a producer kind of start cutting this and changing that. Yes, I do that. I can, I used to not consider budget at all. I thought, well, surely after my first movie, I'll be a studio writer. Well, that didn't happen. So I do factor in budget when I write and I always recommend to, to writers, newer writers who ask me my opinion on it. Um, I'll say, yeah, you're, you're crazy if you don't factor in budget because you're not going to sell your script and get it made into a hundred million dollar movie. Okay. Uh, nobody writes a spec now and gets it made into one of these big blockbuster uh, tentpole movies. Those are all set up deals, assignments from studios who already own the IP and all that. So, you know, if you're a, what, um, what a, a buddy of mine, uh, Dominic Morgan calls a blue collar writer, which I consider myself a blue collar writer. Um, you're going to have to write movies that get made for two to five million, maybe like you said, ten million. So you you can't have a car chase in downtown Paris. You know you can't have uh, people climbing up the Eiffel Tower. James Bond can do that, but uh, you know we can't. So yeah, yeah, definitely factor in budget constraints because I've had so many producers say, okay, I like this, but take out this, take out this. You know, I had a I had a helicopter get shot down in the middle of Laredo, uh, Laredo, Texas, and in one of my scripts. And of course, they're not going to film that. I didn't know that at the time, but now I do. And I had a producer say, hey, look, a guy with a um, grindstone. He said, hey, uh, I like this, but you got to take out that helicopter getting shot down with a rocket. That's really expensive. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely factor in budget. If you're if you're a if you're a blue collar writer like me, factor in budget. Just to wind things up, what's your general day-to-day routine are you an early guy getting up working a certain number of hours on your on your writing then making calls how do you sort of generally schedule your day when you're working um i i get up and and start writing if i'm writing that day uh i start writing about 7 30 or 8 o'clock and i i write till four or five uh you know yeah. when i have a when i'm working on a screenplay um you know i write all day um make some phone calls, but once I get a, an assignment or assignment or I'm writing one of my specs and I'm into the, uh, the writing aspect of it, I, I pretty much block everything out and just write all day. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult, isn't it? Doing both, at least doing them well. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're in the groove writing, you just really need to shut the door, so to speak, you know, and, uh, focus on that, don't you? Yeah, that's, that's what I do. And then like right now, I'm not actually writing a project right this minute. I'm waiting to see if this other deal comes. But as soon as that comes and I get the assignment, start writing, I'll be, I'm a big outliner. So, you know, it'll take me a few weeks to put together an outline. And then once I get the outline nailed, I really find that writing the script itself is the easy part. It's the outline that takes all the thinking and the back and forth with 
scenes. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I write all day when I'm in writing mode. That's what I do. I'll just go day to day, write every day. I take the weekends off, but I write Monday through Friday. And, um, you know, once I start writing a script, I could probably get the first draft out in two months, something like that. Yeah, pretty good going. Cool. Well, Chuck, we should wind up here. Thanks so much for talking to me. It's been really good. Uh, that was great, Nick. Thanks, uh, and uh, cool. best of luck to you, buddy. Chuck Usmeyer. Just before you go, if you're a regular here and enjoy the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you and take care.